Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories of the week was the president issuing a statement saying that they're going to stand by Saudi Arabia and the crown prince there, Mohammed bin Salman, after CIA officials determined that he did have a hand in ordering the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The president released a statement with a lot of exclamation points saying that they spent a lot of money in the United States, over $450 billion, $110 billion of that goes to purchase military weapons from us. And he does doesn't want to put any of that in peril. Congress wants an investigation to see exactly what role the crown prince did play. The top Republican and Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Corker and Senator Bob Menendez, sent a letter to the White House to officially trigger an investigation into whether the crown prince ordered the plot. For more on this, we spoke to Axios World Editor Dave Lawler. And we started off by talking about what was in the president's statement. Trump has explicitly said that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, may have been behind this. He said, we may never know. But regardless of whether this order to kill Jamal Khashoggi came from the top or not, we're going to stand by Saudi Arabia. The relationship is too important. And so, yeah, nothing changes. The president cites a lot of investment that the Saudis are putting into the U.S. He says that they're investing $450 billion, $110 billion of that is going to be spent on the purchase of military equipment. What do we know about that? And beyond that, because we know about these weapons deals, but how else does Saudi Arabia figure into the president's plan for the Middle East? Saudi Arabia is the biggest purchaser of U.S. weapons. They're also making big investments in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of linkage between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. economy. Beyond that, Trump has made a big bet on Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular as the linchpin of his Middle East strategy, which which is about isolating Iran. Standing up to Iran is about pushing forward this Middle East peace plan that he's going to roll out shortly. And uh, on those points, Saudi Arabia is a key ally for the United States. He has made a, a big investment in this crown prince of Saudi Arabia as his key partner in the Middle East. And he's saying we're not willing to walk away from that no matter what he did here. Yeah, he does mention in a statement a few times uh, Iran and how Saudi Arabia has been a great ally in our important fight against Iran. So I know that's a big thing for him. There at Axios, you guys had been reporting that the president did say that this is, you know, assa the assassination was really bad. But he continues to say, hey, this isn't maybe worse than what other countries like China are doing. And he continues to say he wasn't an American citizen. It didn't happen on American soil. We know Khashoggi was a resident of the United States, but it's kind of that, you know, it didn't happen here. Why should we care so much attitude? Right. And those statements that my colleague Jonathan Swan reported remind me of an interview Trump did about Vladimir Putin, actually, where he was told, well, Vladimir Putin's a killer. And Trump says there's a lot of killers in the world. His view is basically there's bad stuff happening all over the place. We shouldn't be making such a big deal out of the murder of one journalist when it's an important strategic relationship and when other countries we're dealing with, like China, are committing all sorts of abuses as well. So he's saying this is an overreaction from the rest of the world and, and he's not going to uh, let it change his course. At the end of the president's statement, he just, you know, he has his whole 
explanation for why he's sticking with Saudi Arabia. And at the end, he says, very simply, it's called America First. Mike Pompeo was doing a short question and answer with the press, and somebody asked him, does America First now mean putting our monetary interests, because of all the weapons deals, above human rights interests? He had a boilerplate answer and everything, but that's kind of what it seems like with everything that we're starting to learn now about the death and with this president's statement. They've explicitly said, even if the guys we're dealing with in Saudi Arabia are responsible for this murder, that's not going to change the way we deal with them. So that sends a pretty clear signal to the rest of the world, right? If you're sitting in a world capital, maybe maybe in Turkey, maybe the new president of Brazil, who has some pretty hardline policies, the Philippines, it's a pretty clear signal from the U.S. that we don't really care what you do when it comes to human rights, as long as the relationship makes sense to us from an economic or security perspective. And I don't even think Trump would challenge that statement. I think that's a pretty clear policy and you can't lay it out much more clearly than he did in this statement. And the president still continues to cast doubt saying, will anybody really know? We don't know. Intelligence officials are saying that Mohammed bin Salman did have a hand in ordering it. The other people caution there might be a varying degrees of to which he was involved, but how else are you involved? <laughs> if you ordered it or you knew about it, you're involved in that whole thing. I mean, to what varying degrees are people trying to cast doubts on this with? First thing we shouldn't believe anything the Saudis say. A lot of what they've said on this has already been proved to be false. So that's number one. The second thing is evidence has pointed to a very high level coordination from the beginning. Now we hear there's uh, reporting from the Washington Post and elsewhere that the CIA has concluded that Mohammed bin Salman ordered this murder. And there's so much evidence in that direction and not much on the other side. Now, I clearly haven't seen this firsthand. So can I say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did it? No, but President Trump has access to all of this intelligence. And so he may very well know the answer there. And yet, his line is, we don't know, we may never know. So I think he doesn't want to know, to be right, honest. If yeah. he doesn't know, it's it's a case that he doesn't want to know. There is audio tape of some of this assassination. The president said, hey, you know, I've been briefed on it, and he probably has. You know, they probably gave him a, a full briefing on what is on that tape. But, you know, he said he didn't want to hear it himself. And Turkish newspapers are reporting, you know, they're citing Turkish uh, security sources saying that they grabbed him right away. They were fighting. They beat him and tortured him. They called him a traitor. And there's a man's voice saying it's spooky to wear the clothes of a man whom we killed 20 minutes ago. And we see it on a surveillance video. One of these guys wearing Jamal Khashoggi's suit after that. Uh, so it's just a lot of right. evidence right now. And it's just so weird to take this position. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. The job market right now in this country is so hot that there are more jobs than there are unemployed Americans. There's this new trend going on where employers trying to recruit new workers are just hiring candidates right off the bat. Maybe one phone interview. You don't have to come in for an in-person interview. And it's just reflective of how hot the job market is. We spoke to Chip Cutter, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, about this new trend hiring workers sight unseen. This trend really surprised me. And what we found in talking to workers in all different industries is that a number of people are being hired sight unseen, where you might have a single phone interview and get the job from there. So this is happening, for example, this holiday season at companies like Macy's, where people are getting in-store positions after sometimes a 20, 25-minute phone interview. But also, kind of in reporting the story out, I talked with teachers that have been hired this way. Yeah. There are examples of engineers, IT people. So it really kind of runs the gamut. And I think it all goes back to just how tight the economy 
economy is right now. Now, it makes sense that for holiday season workers, a lot of part timers and things like that, it kind of makes sense that you would do a phone interview. But those are also the people that you need to talk to in person, because if they're working in retail and that you need to make sure their people skills are up to par. So hiring them over the phone kind of seems counterintuitive to that. It really does. And I think that's what struck us as being kind of interesting about this. But I think the companies have made the calculation that they would rather take that risk that somebody may not present well in front of a customer or somebody may not work well on a team. They'd rather take that risk just to get them in the door. They know that even waiting a couple of days means that someone could go somewhere else and get a job elsewhere. So people say that time kills all deals. And I think a lot of recruiters just want to snag someone while they can, while they're interested, and then they'll do something if they need to, if the person doesn't work out. But I think they really just don't want to chance it that the person might end up at another employer. One of the funny things from the people that you were talking to is these employees themselves, the people that are getting hired, also feel a little awkward about the whole interaction. They're like, is this a scam? Are you sure you don't want me to come in? I'll drive the hour and a half or something to get there if I have to do a real interview. And so they're thrown off by it also. They really are. I mean, the one person I spoke with, she's a she's a college student in Texas, and she offered to drive 90 minutes for that job. She got a job at Bath & Body Works. And the person that she spoke with over the phone said, no, no, you're hired. You're hired by phone. No need to do that. And she said that when she came in on her first day of work, the manager told her, oh, you do look like your picture. And so uh, <laughs> I think she was a little bit startled by that. And a number of people I spoke with said they just didn't expect it. I mean, they have memories of the Great Recession when it was so hard to get a job. So this idea that you could talk on the phone for 20, 25 minutes and get a job offer, it just seems crazy to a lot of them. But certainly people aren't complaining. And, and there are kind of advantages of this. People said that they felt like there was not bias in hiring this way and that they appreciated that it was an efficient way to get a job. So they might be startled, but I think they're ultimately not complaining that they got work so fast. Just the way current digital trends and things are going, we're always on our screens. I, I'm not surprised there's not more, you know, just Skype and FaceTime interviews. Obviously, we're talking about being on the phone, but even kind of this detachment of being in person. We've talked about the notion of ghosting, but at work before on the podcast. Uh, and I think you wrote an article specifically addressing that stuff before. Don't you think this kind of contributes to that where, hey, they just hired me on the phone real quick. Maybe the day comes, I'm supposed to report for work tomorrow. You know what? I got a better offer. Or I don't want to even go in anymore. The ghosting trend is so interesting. This idea that people would just stand recruiters up for, for coffees or interviews or accept the job and just never show up for the first day of work. I think there is a sense of that, that detachment. And, and even some people I spoke with for this story, people who had been hired by phone, they left their jobs within a period of months. I mean, the one person I spoke with was on the job, I think, for about a month, a month and a half. And so certainly there isn't really that feeling of loyalty, I think, on, on either side. But I think companies are willing to put up with that. They know ghosting is an issue they have to contend with. They also know they have to contend with the fact that there is just a limited pool of workers for some of these positions. So they'll come up with more creative ways to get them in the door. And I think experts are quick to point out that just because you have a really long hiring process or just because you do lots of in-person interviews, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a better candidate. So in some ways, you know, experts have said it's not crazy for companies to abandon these in-person interviews altogether. There's a million more job openings right now than there are unemployed Americans. And it's just one of those things to caution. The job market is, is hot right now. There's a lot of jobs out there, but you can't get into this kind of complacency thing where, hey, you know, I'm always going to be able to find a job. You have to be respectful of the process also. Uh, so don't get caught off guard how, how easy it is to get a job now, because in the future, it might not be like that. That's absolutely right. And this could turn within a period of months or years. Recruiters have long memories. They know that the hiring market is cyclical. They have said that the people that have ghosted them or treated them poorly, they will 
you'll remember when it's a different cycle when recruiters and the companies have the upper hand. I mean, right now it's the workers with, with all the options, which I think a lot of people are very happy to see. But like you said, this could easily change uh, if the economy uh, turns. And so I think having good behavior, being respectful in all the parts of the interview process, I think those are all just kind of good lessons to remember no matter how hot the job market might be right now. One of the funniest examples that you had in your article was a guy who called in for, you know, who was going to do a phone interview and then he actually called and there was no human on the line. It was just kind of like a phone questionnaire that they wanted them just talk about yourself and things like that. Are companies seeing downsides to these types of practices? This example, I, I was really struck by. And so he was applying for a job at Gate Gourmet, which is an airline caterer. And he had to do about a 10-minute phone interview as part of that. And so this interview was asking him to describe things like talk about your future plans and explain why you want this job. And I think we've all been in those phone interviews where you have, you know, you have a two-sided exchange. You say something, the recruiter says say something back. Here, it was just him talking. He'd press the pound key when he was done with his answer and go on to the next question. The people I've spoke with who've taken these kinds of interviews, you know, universally loathe them. They say that they just feel that these are impersonal and tough to get through. So that was certainly the way he felt. He said you can't have a conversation with a robot. And then what he found is not only did he take this automated interview, he then arrived for what he thought was an in-person interview with this company. And instead of that, he said it was ultimately kind of what he described as a signing day where they just got there. They were quickly told, oh, no, you, you guys have the jobs. This really is not an interview. And then they went in for their drug testing and that and that sort of things. So I think it's just these automated interviews are just another sign of, of just how the job market is shifting. Chip Cutter, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for your time. The battle to legalize sports betting was won back in May when the Supreme Court decided that states can work on legalizing sports betting in their respective states. The next fight over this is now whether college or professional sports leagues will get a piece of the action. Legislatures all over the country right now are figuring out all those rules. And for more on this, we spoke to Dan Permack. He's the business editor at Axios, also the host of the Pro Rata podcast. And we started off by talking about how Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, sees this whole thing going. Adam Silver has been a proponent of legalized sports betting for years, long before the Supreme Court ruling. In fact, four years ago this week or last week, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about this. And that was partially born of the fact that his earlier job in the NBA involved a lot of selling overseas where, you know, if you go to Europe, sports betting, including inside of games, is, is just considered standard. It's not unusual. And so Silver's point of view is he, he supports it. He thinks it is good for fan engagement. But that said, he wants a piece. He wants the league <laughs> right. to get a piece. But his words, the league is spending and he said $8 billion this year to put on this game, and they should therefore get a cut of a business which is built effectively exclusively on top of those games. He also says that he believes the league's leverage comes in its proprietary data, so official statistics, real-time feeds, biometric data feeds. Potentially biometric. So, so I raised Expe that, and, so, and Silver thought it was a possibility. Yeah, he, he does. You know, there's a lot of disagreement on this by, by bookmakers, but his feeling is that there is certain data that the league has that bookmakers, if not, should be paying for. So, so he talks about so-called integrity fees. He's basically looking for a royalty. And his argument is that having, if you're a sports book, having NBA official data, there is a value in that, A, because it would be trusted, and B, potentially... It would be real time. So anytime you watch a basketball game, for example, on TV, you're, you're probably on a six to 10 second delay, which doesn't sound like much, but sports lines are constantly changing throughout the game. New prop bets are being created throughout the game. So Silver's argument is you'll get real time verified official data from us. And then the people who are betting with you with the sports book can trust it because it's official NBA data. A lot of the sports books respond. We can watch TV like everybody else and figure out who got the rebound. <laughs> Explain to us real quick, though, what kind of biometric data feeds 
could be possible. So in theory, and this is a long-term thing and you would need player buy-in and their privacy issues, but for example, think if you have, say, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or any of those sorts of wearables, think of the information, just basic information you have, things like heart rate, etc. Well, in theory, a sports book could change its line based on how tired the star player on a team is or, or how much energy the star player on a team has. You wow. ever joked about kind of the idea of a sweat-a-meter. It sounds ridiculous, but these are the small little incremental pieces of data which down the line theoretically could become available. <laughs> That's like almost video game statistics now where, sure. you know, the little meter at the bottom starts to turn yellow and red as your player gets tired, meaning it's time to switch him out or something like it that. Is, That's but, so I mean, crazy. Think of, think of some sport metrics in sports today that we didn't used to have, or at least we as fans didn't used to have. Just, just look at baseball, which is the speed of the pitch, how fast the ball is going. We didn't used to get that. Some teams used to track that, but it's not something fans used to have. It's certainly not something sports books used to have, but they use that now to determine Hey, wait, the guy with the 95 mile an hour fastball is only throwing 90. He's getting tired and that affects the lines. What's the view from Las Vegas? They don't want to pay up. No, they definitely don't want to pay the leagues. The, the view from Las Vegas is we have done this for decades. We have done this successfully. We know who our betters are, right? The ball boy can't come in and put money down on the game, nor can his brother or his sister. They feel that they have worked very hard to maintain integrity in the games and the betting process. And they feel that the leagues have benefited from what Las Vegas does because it increases engagement. So they see no reason to pay, again, unless there was some sort of actual proprietary data, some advantage they could get. And how about out of DraftKings and other fantasy gaming type apps? I know they hit the market pretty huge. And at first they were saying, oh, you know, we're not involved in gambling, but that kind of all changed once the Supreme Court ruling came down. Yeah, it did. They, they moved very quickly. They were ready to go. DraftKings did, I think, the first month of the NFL season. So DraftKings, for example, has a working sports book digitally in New Jersey, and they did, I think, $7 million maybe worth of business just on betting in Jersey in that first month. They're in an interesting position because they've got money from certain professional sports team owners. They've long been partners with professional sports teams at Daily Fantasy. So they're kind of splitting the difference a little bit. And they're also newer to the business, right? Even even though the woman who's running their sports book is a Vegas veteran from Caesars and, and others, they're splitting the difference a little bit and basically saying we could see paying for certain types of data. And the co-founder there, Matt Kalish, for example, he referenced the fact that the NFL now has chips in right. its footballs, which measure how fast the quarterback is throwing it. That would be the sort of information that he thinks could impact betting lines and that they'd perhaps be willing to pay for down the line. All of this really just seems like it's going to be confusing across multiple states with different leagues, different sports. I mean, it looks like the potential for just a ton of lawyers and a ton of lawsuits later. So in Silver's op-ed, the one from four years ago, he wanted a federal framework. He wanted a federal law. And, and when I asked him about that in, in context of today, he admitted that, that when he wrote that, he never anticipated that the Supreme Court would strike down the law, which banned online betting everywhere outside of Nevada. He just never thought that was going to happen. Now, as he said, there's not really an appetite for a federal law. It would make the most sense. You could have standardization, but it's now working state by state. The game is changing. It's going to impact the leagues themselves and fans alike. So it's going to be a crazy time. Dan Primack, business editor for Axios, host of the Pro Rata podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.